Hello everyone and welcome to Side Dish. This is an IFT podcast that dishes up the perspectives from multiple disciplines relating to the science of food and developing your career in a rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. In virtually any consumer research that looks for key drivers of consumer enjoyment of food products, we find that taste of the food comes up as the number one motivating factor time and time again. However, achieving great taste can be a huge challenge and we often need to offset the adverse impacts of taste on such things as the other ingredients we might need to use for label claims or food stability issues or the impact of the process itself. That's when product developers often turn to flavors. Flavors are a $15 billion category, yet what do we really know about them? And how can we optimize their use for the benefit of consumers? Well, today we're joined by two deeply experienced and excellent speakers from Flavorsum. Flavorsum is a newly created flavor company that's working with startups and small to medium-sized food businesses to help them unlock consumer insights and support them in navigating the hurdles to successful product launches. Our two guests today are Dave France, Vice President of Sales and Marketing, and Lisa Jackson, Director of Marketing. Both are now working for this new business, Flavorsum. Dave brings over 15 years of experience with both regional and global flavor manufacturers to this conversation. He's worked in the areas of marketing, flavor creation, and product innovation. And Lisa brings a wealth of experience working with many different food businesses on innovation strategy and bringing delicious solutions to market to meet consumers' needs and interests. Welcome to the show, Lisa and Dave. Thank you for the opportunity to connect with you today. Thank you, Bruce. We're excited to be here. And we're excited to have you, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Perhaps we can start today by asking each of you to tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the flavor business. Lisa, how about you start? I have worked in marketing and communications for many large CPG organizations, helping them connect with consumers and identify need states, and then translating those needs into products, foods, and beverages that satisfy expectations. Um, I had the opportunity to shift from consumer packaged goods into the flavor industry several years ago, and I found that it gave me the opportunity to hone in really tightly on, as you mentioned, the driver of consumer pleasure, which is, gosh, does it does it taste good? And so that's what drew me in. How about you, Dave? I would say it's... I. Couldn't avoid the food industry with two parents in food science. Uh, growing up, I was always fascinated by what an amazing job my parents had in the development and launch of new food products, often having the opportunity to taste the number of those products at home before the rest of the world was able to see them. Uh, led me to joining the flavor industry out of college and have had the opportunity to be mainly in commercially facing roles where I've had the opportunity to 
work with companies across the spectrum from consumer healthcare to beverage uh, in bringing new product innovation to life and has really been a, a joyful experience to continue that legacy uh, that, that started so long ago, uh, watching my parents do the same. And I think it's exciting to be the consumer. It's, it's exciting to have the consumer voice at the table. I always felt like I was the advocate and, and brought that perspective to meetings inside a corporation because sometimes it's easy to lose sight of who's actually going to be buying your product. I also think, too, that, that finding insights in a bunch of data is like solving a mystery. You have this question, you have this challenge, and how do you dig through all of the data and resources and really connect with the ideas that are going to resonate with consumers? That's a really exciting part of the challenge. So, so I'm so glad you brought up the concept of insights. I mean, insights, I think, are a really uh, powerful way to go about the product development process. And, and what I was really interested is your experience in the best way of unlocking those powerful consumer insights so that we can really provide the, the, the greatest uh, form of inspiration for our product development team. So where do you, where do you, in your experience, where is the best insights come from? I think there's no single source. I think it has to be a multifaceted approach to finding insights. So for us, we employ a variety of tools. We engage with social listening platforms because as consumers go online and they search for food products or they're looking at recipes, you'll begin to see themes that tell you, oh, you know what? Ginger is really rising to the top. I see a lot of people looking at ginger now because of its immunity boosting capabilities. There's something there. Um, we also monitor new products. I'll actually go to the grocery store and swoop a bunch of products off the shelf and bring them back to the team. And we'll do what we call a market sweep. And we taste 20 different ice creams. It's a very good day uh, on ice cream tasting day. But there too, you get a sense of here's what's in the marketplace. Um, here's what seems to be resonating. Here's what's gaining traction. I see 50 different versions of mint. Mint must be important. And then we also conduct our own proprietary research with consumers. So we'll take ideas to them and say, we're thinking about coming up with um, this new beverage flavor. And here are some options. And which ones seem to connect with you? What do they deliver? Um, where are their gaps? What are things that you think about when you think about an alcoholic beverage? Does it make sense to have oh, a blackberry or are you more interested in the citrus families, right? And so that proprietary research also informs our product development process. But it, as I said, it's really multifaceted. So it starts with listening, watching, and then asking. And then I think it's the compilation and the analysis of all that that we bring back to our team. And two, we're lucky at, at uh, in both of the, the U.S. and Canadian facilities, we have a range of foodies. Everyone likes food. And so everyone's experimenting with food and recipes. And they, too, bring ideas to bear when it comes to coming up with new uh, flavor innovation. There doesn't seem to be too much observation, deep observation you can make of what consumers actually do with food. And it seems to me to that that uh, process of finding an insight is more observational than anything else. Is that your, been your experience? I think it certainly starts with observation, yes, um, and, and conversation. 
So we will engage with people in the food service industry. Many times chefs will bring inspiration to customers and say, wow, this is a recipe that I've really gotten traction with and we'll borrow from that. But I, I think too, then it is asking, it's having a conversation with consumers. What does taste great about this peanut butter flavor? What is falling short? You know, what did you expect? Did it deliver on sweetness? Did it deliver on texture? And and doing the, that that kind of inquiry allows you to then adjust the end result for them, make some tweaks so that it's really optimal for them. Dave, did you have anything you'd like to add to that? I'd say what's been very interesting about some of the insight work that we've been conducting is the power of association and how consumers associate certain flavors with with certain experiences either from their past or based on how they're consuming a, a product. Um, so if it's indulgence and you're, you're thinking indulgence into a coffee creamer, consumers' expectations would tie then to flavor profiles that may be reminiscent of their favorite ice cream. And finding those cross-category opportunities where you can trigger consumer expectations for either a day part or an experience that they're looking to bring out of a different category and tying that back to nostalgia or, or other associations that they might have is really exciting and interesting. And you see that all across food and beverage where new flavor innovation may be innovative for the category, but isn't necessarily an innovative new flavor that consumers have never experienced. They're just not used to, to experiencing it in the category or the application, but they're, they're knowledgeable and have an expectation for what that flavor would deliver. So Dave, you, you mentioned this concept of the power of association, and that's a fascinating concept. I have vivid memories of various aromas and flavors stimulating emotional connections to things I've done in my past and what have you. Do you see that, the power of association with flavors and aromas playing a big role in the enjoyment of, of taste? Absolutely. I, I think what's interesting about it is that we all have, even for specific flavors, we all have different experiences and emotional ties to those flavors. Uh, some of it might tie back to where your grandmother's apple pie and what that tasted like. And my grandmother may have had a different recipe. And as a result of that, our expectation even for a flavor such as apple pie will be distinctively different. And so that's a nuance that's that's very interesting to see play out um, when we share flavors with both product developers as well as consumers is to see how they associate that back to experiences in their past. And as a result of that, not only what profiles they prefer, but also whether or not they have positive or negative associations with certain taste profiles. Um, I think the, the famous one is tequila. Some people immediately have a, a negative uh, experience with tequila uh, as a result of potentially overindulgence. And so as a result, don't put a tequila flavored product in front of them. Uh, and yeah, you could you can see how that, that could then play out to a dislike for a product, but at the same time, 
something such as apple pie may have bring back warm, great memories. And so as you're reaching for an indulgent product and something that you want as a comfort food, apple pie would be a great flavor that you'd reach for and love to enjoy over and over. So it really depends on uh, what the application is and what the experience that you're looking to build for the consumer and ultimately very individualistic uh, and subjective from a consumer perspective on which flavor profiles they gravitate towards based on their association, not only with expectations for the product, but past experiences with those flavors. So it's a deeply emotional uh, experience. And, and, and so I do think that those associations not only cause or incent consumers to be attracted to certain flavor profiles, but it also, those associations establish guardrails around what you can do from a development perspective. So for example, um, you may never want to have a tequila flavored yogurt. <laughs> so, you know, it, it will tell you that the, the flavor associations will allow you, will give you insight into where you can take that flavor across category. And consumers are very clear about what fits with a category and what doesn't. So there's some clearly very fast-growing, exciting new categories in the market at the moment, and some of these can have really significant challenges in terms of taste. So I'm thinking about a category like uh, plant-based proteins. Can you tell us a little bit about why this segment has turned out to be so challenging from a taste acceptance point of view, and, and what can the flavor industry do to help overcome those challenges. Dave, do you want to lead us off this time? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, the, the category certainly is very exciting and you know, the, the, the pace of innovation is, is incredible um, with a number of different plant-based protein sources uh, being commercialized and, and brought to market uh, we're seeing everything from um, pea protein, soy, almond, oat, uh, to avocado, all being uh, utilized as bases for product innovation across multiple categories. And each one of them, uh, due to not only their source, but also the processing that's required in order to make those uh, sources viable for utilization in an application uh, have an impact on the the taste profile that is inherent. And uh, even in the spectrum of something like pea protein, the source of the peas, the commercial processing of the peas into a pea-based protein all have impacts on the the taste profile and the off notes that come uh, associated with that product. And what we've also seen is that the same pea protein from the from a similar source may have different off notes depending on the, the dosage rate of the protein. Uh, so something that's not impactful at five grams uh, dosage per serving it becomes extremely pronounced and, and impactful at 15 grams of dosing. Uh, so as a result of that, the challenges for product developers are quite vast. Uh, they have to not only balance 
considerations such as price and availability of the of the product, but they also have to think about the impact of taste associated with uh, the dosage rates and the final processing of their application. So something that's going to be utilized into a ready mixed beverage won't be seeing the the high heat. Uh, that might come through thermal processing associated with launching an RTD into the same segment. Um, so as a result, collaboration with a flavor company can, can be extremely impactful uh, to helping improve the taste profile, um, not only with understanding the source of the protein, the dosage of the protein, and the final processing, and how that pertains to which masking solutions we might leverage as a flavor company, but also then thinking about, as we spoke about consumer insights and, and consumer expectations, what, what flavor should you be thinking of pairing with that from a tonality standpoint? Um, so it, it really is a complex challenge and one that's a, lo a lot of fun from a flavoring perspective because each product project is different and uh, as a result really requires both the scientific approach from a flavor creation standpoint but also the artistic approach uh, from a consumer insight and, and flavor creation standpoint to be able to come with a solution that delivers on expectations of consumers um, we've done some research and before we get into the science i think it'd be interesting for lisa to share uh, some of the insights that we've gained about consumers' expectations and how the base actually plays into expectations of what type of flavor you should be thinking about. Uh, so once you neutralize the negative taste impacts, um, it's also important that if you're innovating in the almond space, that then lends itself to certain expectations from a consumer. Versus if you're innovating in a space like oat, consumer expectation and the types of flavors that you might leverage would be distinctively different. And that, that is true. So uh, we recently conducted some research with consumers throughout North America. And we asked them about flavor profiles that would fit with different plant bases. And we learned that of the top four, and the top four selling bases in the plant-based space right now are almond, soy, coconut, and oat. Almond and coconut are the most versatile in terms of the types of flavors that consumers could pair with those. Everything from a simple sweet vanilla to something that's a little bit more fun or uh, something that's um, perceived to be healthier, a melon flavor, for example, or a berry flavor. Both of them could also be paired with indulgent flavors, so a rich chocolate fudge, for example marries well with both, according to consumers and their expectations. In contrast, soy and oat are a little less versatile, at least from a consumer's perspective. While a nice, simple, sweet vanilla or uh, cinnamon pair well with oat, it's less likely to be lined with something like a melon or even a berry. And similarly, soy doesn't extend as far into the area of indulgence as some of the other bases. And so this is information that we then take back to our development team to help inform the innovation process. So I think it's, yeah, to answer the original question, Bruce, I think it's important as product developers are working with their flavor suppliers that they be as transparent as they can be in reference to the source of the 
the plant-based protein that they're leveraging, how they intend to process that, and their targeted consumer. And as a result, their flavor supplier can look to mitigate the off notes and the negative attributes that might be derived from that source at the, at the dosage level desired. And they can influence the direction of the, the skew uh, that you would launch from a tonality standpoint to meet consumer expectation for that base, but also then to complement or further mask any, any negative attributes associated with that, that base. So it really is a holistic collaborative approach that, that is um, one that, that is best informed with the most information from both ends. So would that also be true for the world of non-nutritive sweeteners? Because we, we've seen that this segment has transitioned to more natural options over more recent years like stevia and monk fruit. But even these natural sweeteners have a very different taste profile to sucrose and and products made with them often struggled to achieve the consumer acceptance that we'd really like. Can you help us understand what the issues are with getting consumer acceptance with the non-nutritive sweeteners and how flavor industry will help in that environment? Absolutely. So I think the, the biggest challenge is that while consumers don't like the caloric and other negative impacts of sucrose, they definitely love the taste. And so sweet still is king. And the, the profile of a sweet product uh, as you move away from sucrose will always be compared and, and expected to deliver against consumer expectations on sucrose. And so where it really comes in is what's called the temporal profile. So the, the time and intensity associated with the both the onset of sweetness, the middle profile of sweetness, and ultimately the, the lingering sweet. So how long does that resonate on your tongue? And so as a result, similar to plant-based protein, uh, working with a flavor supplier to take a multifaceted approach uh, to bringing that temporal profile for whether it's a, a blend of nutritive or non or excuse me, natural or artificial uh, sweeteners to bring the profile of the, the sweetener blend as close uh, as possible to sucrose, but then also working with your flavor supplier to understand how to modify dosage and utilize FMPs and other taste modulation solutions to mimic the, the profile of sucrose as much as possible. And so for example, with stevia, one of the challenges typically is that you have a delayed onset of sweetness. And in order to make up for that delayed onset, oftentimes uh, product developers will dose more stevia. But that, that's actually the opposite um, benefit because what all you're doing is increasing uh, middle sweet and, and, and lingering. Excuse and actually... Yeah, actually, after you get to about 350 to 400 ppm of stevia, uh, you get diminishing return from more dosage. And so the approach that a flavor company may employ would be to reduce the amount of stevia being utilized into the formulation and leverage 
flavors with modulating properties to be able to bring back upfront and middle sweet. And as a result, you have less back end linger that you need to mask. So in a lot of cases, working with a, a flavor company will be asked, can you send me your stevia masker? And while that is a tool that we have in our toolkit, it's actually only addressing a small portion of the overall challenge. And we would much prefer to help with how do we build out the correct suite profile so that you have less lingering in the back end that you need to mask through a stevia masker. Right. So, so a, you know, the, the generic term stevia masker is is a little problematic in itself, depending on the application, is effectively what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. I think it's it, the, the term should be how can we optimize the sweetness profile? And as a result of that, the, the flavor industry has a number of tools in their toolkit that can be leveraged to be able to help with that product development challenge. And oftentimes um, those can be done at improved cost and use compared to other alternatives. Uh, because while stevia has become more commercially available and process agricultural and processing uh, has led to a reduction in overall price points. And the other natural non-nutritive sweetener opportunities out there, such as sugar alcohols or um, monk fruit, aren't as cost-effective and as a result drive significant costs into the, the bill of materials for a product. And flavor solutions can help offset some of those costs while delivering similar taste benefits. So so what in your view are the big food challenges the food industry has today and, and going forward, what role can and maybe even will the flavor industry have in helping to ensure those big challenges are addressed and resolved? So so Lisa, perhaps we'll start with you this time. What what do you see as the as the big big challenges for the food industry that the flavor industry might be able to help with? Well, so I think Dave touched on it when he was talking about the and you did as well, the the switch over to lower calorie, lower sugar, and overall healthier profile in the foods and beverages that people are buying. Um, that was already an emerging trend prior to last year, but the onset of all of the pandemic last year has really created behaviors that we believe will be enduring. So for many food producers, it is about then aligning their portfolio with these new expectations. So I don't want natural, I don't want artificiality in my product. I don't want artificial sugars. I don't want things I can't read on the label. Um, as I said, that, that was an emerging trend, but it's really gaining momentum now. And the flavor industry can support that with solutions that deliver natural ingredients cost-effectively because even in the midst of consumers saying, I want a healthier product, they don't want to sacrifice taste. They still want to have an enjoyable experience. And, uh, and so, you know, many times in a beverage, for example, if someone wants a, a lower no sugar, depending on the flavor profile that you choose, you can create the sensation or experience of sweetness without actually having high levels of sucrose. So flavors are a very versatile and creative way to address some of these health concerns with consumers. 
Hmm. And Dave, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Well, I, th- I think I would, I would echo Lisa's um, sentiments in the, in the sense that in, consumers are expecting more from the foods and beverages that they consume. Uh, so their expectation is that not only will they um, deliver sustenance, but in many cases that they'll deliver in, increased health benefits. Um, and this idea that uh, proactive health is is something that you expect to be coming now from your your food and beverage products. So how can I throughout the day be consuming something that might help my immune support or something that will help with my cognitive function, et cetera, um, while also being low, low in caloric uh, value and, and other challenges that product developers will face. But at the end of the day, and you said it at the onset of our discussion, taste is is king, right? And um, yeah, so while I have these increased expectations for what the product is delivering to me, both functionally as, as well as what it's not delivering to me from a, a an unhealthy standpoint, it has to taste great. I still want an interesting taste experience when I'm when I'm reaching for the product, and ultimately what's going to drive me back to the product is how well does it taste and will I want to experience that again? So you can, you can give me the, the, something that would make me the healthiest person uh, alive. But if, if I can't get through two gulps of it, it's not a beverage that I'm going to want to go back and consume over and over again. Uh, so that's where the flavor industry really is critical in being able to help food and beverage manufacturers keep pace with consumer expectation, not only for increased functionality, increased health benefits, um, sustainability, all those challenges that are facing the industry. But we need to make products approachable for consumers to be able to drive the behavior of repeat purchase that's so important. Right. So we've covered a lot of ground today. However, I didn't want to close out the discussion without giving you the opportunity to talk about what you wish food scientists in our audience knew about using flavors, what they should know about the flavor industry even. What would you really want to make sure that every food scientist knew about flavors and or how to get the best value from them. Uh, Lisa, do you want to start us off this time? Yeah, if I'm being honest, what I would want the flavor industry to know is that um, consumers are not to be underestimated. Consumers are aware. Um, many of them are very concerned about the foods and beverages that they consume. They're reading labels. They're doing their research. They're having conversations online. They're investigating. They'll look at your Wikipedia page, you know, and and so all of that information is informing the decisions that they make. And I think to to be to be respectful of of their of their desires and their wants, and to to recognize that, um, I mean, ult- ultimately, their voice is the one that keeps us all all in business and. And respecting that by delivering the solutions that they need for their for their own well being and that of their families. You know, there's just a really heightened concern when it comes to food and beverages. Dave pointed out 
It's absolutely true that consumers have got more access to information at their fingertips than than ever before, and and they're utilizing that to uh, make decisions. And it, and it, if we don't recognize that and accept that, then you know more fool we. And it, and it, so I think it's important for the flavor industry to encourage the food scientists to be aware of that as well. So, Dave, what was your view on on that? What what do you what would you want all the food scientists in the audience to know about the flavor industry? I'd say, I, from my perspective, I think the the flavor industry is an inter- incredible asset to food scientists in helping to address the challenges that they're facing when they're innovating new products. And so, I encourage open lines of communication and collaboration with your flavor partners uh, as the best way to speed your your innovation process and create solutions that will uh, deliver on those consumer expectations that we've been speaking about. So the more transparent you can be um, with your flavor supplier, the more open dialogue and feedback and communication you can have. Well, that takes time and it takes engagement. From my experience, significantly accelerates the the product development process and helps you achieve your goals much more quickly. And so, I'd say the the, the pace of innovation and the new product development and the tools that are available to a flavorist and the other resources within a flavor supplier are there to be leveraged. And the more collaborative you can be with your suppliers, the more value you'll take from that relationship and the solutions um, that they can provide. Uh, so I really, I think that's a, a critical aspect of, you know, how should a product developer think of the flavor industry as a partner in this together? And our our goal is very well aligned with your goal. And we we are excited to be contributing to um, the success and the innovation in the industry. So if some of our listeners today have an interest in, in having you help them unlock a particular flavor challenge that they're struggling with at the moment, can I ask you to map out what process you might use to uh, help you address that product flavor issue? Sure. So we would look at... Um, Really across multiple, we, we look at it as a multi-stage approach that might be leveraged in its entirety or selectively based on the challenges associated with the product. But really we see it across six different disciplines within our organization. Uh, so the first is the marketing consumer insights to understand, is your idea, does it have merit? And if it does, what are the expectations of the consumers in the space uh, for that product? So as we spoke about marrying expectations for day part um, consumption uh, benefit with base and being able to prescribe what's the right flavor, the right product claim, et cetera, to work with in that project. We also have to take into consideration the regulatory landscape. And so what compliances are required to facilitate the desired outcomes? What label claims would be important for your consumer and, and your, your market? Um, and how do we then create solutions that, that satisfy that? Um, 
understanding your application. So the more we know about what your what your application is, the the different ingredients that you'll be leveraging in your your base and how those are potentially going to interact with each other, as well as interact during the, the processing um, in order to commercialize the product, uh, all allow us to be able to create a customized or leverage an existing solution that we know has been validated in that application that satisfies the application, the regulatory, and then ultimately the consumer expectation. And then on the other side, how can we support with validation of scale-up and confirm that the flavor will deliver the way we expect it to in your base? And, and finally, through sensory validation to say, can we bring it all together and put this in front of a consumer and get the response that we wish? And some of our customers uh, and, and food and beverage manufacturers have those capabilities internally. So they'll rely less on their flavor supplier for them uh, and others don't. So uh, you, it really depends on the customer and the project, but making those available and taking that approach of understanding holistically what are we trying to accomplish is very important. So it seems like you're wanting to or offering to add value in the whole th- stages of the process rather than uh, transactional buy flavor X from me. Um, you, you're offering a, a much more broader service here where you start at the fuzzy front end and, and partner and hold hands all the way through to um, execution. Lisa, would you? How would you characterize it? Would you change anything or add anything to what Dave just said? You know, I think again, coming from from my perspective, the that upfront work, evaluating the concept and making sure it's aligned with either a white space in the category or aligned with a growing area in the category is really important before you get too far into the development process. And to Dave's, as Dave mentioned, sometimes our Customers will already have done that that pre work, if you if you will, before they come to us, and others will come to us with an idea and ask for some validation. And so, when we have dealt with a customer who says, "You know, I'd like to come up with a sweet grass flavored ice cream," or um, what was another one that was interesting? Uh, oh, could I could I get a sour pickle ice cream? You know, sometimes we have to have candid conversations and talk about whether that fits the category and whether they'll be able to sell it more than once, right? And, uh, and so I think that upfront section for us is particularly important to help guide the rest of it. And I think you, you, you picked up on it, Bruce. I think our, our ambition as an organization would be to partner and provide solutions, which enables us to deliver much greater value to a product developer in, in commercializing a product than uh, to be focused on selling a flavor product. Um, so really it's a holistic solutions approach to partner and speed time to market as a result of greater collaboration. Right. This was a very insightful discussion and I learned a lot today. So thank you both very much uh, for all your time and insight today. We're grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and a lot of fun to connect with you, Bruce. Thank you again for the time. 
And thank you to our listeners. If you're enjoying the Side Dish podcast, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes or by connecting with IFT. You can find us on Twitter using at IFT and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and or LinkedIn. For more on this subject today, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in the subject you're interested in the search box to gain access to a ton of resources. Thank you for listening to Side Dish. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Have a great day, everyone.